Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. My name is John Green, and I'm your host. Welcome today. It's been a an odd week this week in in Western North Carolina. It's been kind of nice, warm, yeah, da, da, da. and then suddenly, well, we got hit with a tropical storm, as you do in the mountains. Um, a little weird, to say the least. A lot of rain, some winds. Power got knocked out for a couple of hours, but not a big deal. Voted today. Excited about that. Excited to participate in democracy. Always a good thing. Um, I don't understand, though, why I get so many pieces of mail, why I get bombarded every time I turn on the radio, every time I turn on the television, just bombarded with these ads. And even then, I get to the polls, and people try to hand you things when you're walking in. It's like, seriously? I mean, do people really not know? And if you don't know, you shouldn't vote in those races if you don't know. There are several races locally that I didn't bother to vote in because I don't know anything about the candidates. In some cases, I don't even know what the job is. And so I didn't bother to vote for those. If I don't know, I don't vote. It's just that way. But it's important for us to take part in that because it's important for us to have a say in the people who rule over us or who serve in those roles because, in essence, they do at some level rule over us. They make the laws that govern our common life together. And so since we live in a democracy and we're blessed to live in a democracy and and the most incredible nation on earth in America, then we should take advantage of that. We should absolutely use and exercise the rights we've been given to help choose those in authority over us, or ultimately what will happen is we won't have that option anymore. If we keep arrogating our responsibilities and, and denying ourselves the opportunity to participate, and we don't have anything to complain about, and we're, we shouldn't be allowed to complain if we don't vote. I probably won't complain, therefore, in the next four years about whatever the agriculture commissioner does, because I don't know what he does, and so I didn't vote for that particular office. But it's there's things that we have to accept and understand about the authority of those over us. And so I had a conversation with a friend at work not too long ago about this whole issue. She's a solid Christian, and we have others that work with us who are solid Christians, um, but who absolutely despise our president. And so my friend reached out to me and said, John, I, I didn't vote for the man. Um, But I pray for him every day that he would be a wise leader of this country, and I pray for all our leaders that they would exercise wisdom and that God would ultimately direct them in all that they do. And I I said, I agree with you 100%. And that's, in fact, what Scripture tells us to do. We've got to understand the role of authority on this earth. God is ultimately in charge of everything. So no matter what happens, remember that. He's in charge, whether your guy gets elected or not that God's in charge of everything, and all will be well, and all will be according to His designs. So we have to rest in the ultimate sovereignty of God. That's the place where we need to be. So no matter how this goes on Tuesday of next week, or if we know, even on Tuesday of next week, because at this point, who knows, because it's 2020. So We've just got to make sure that we have 2020 vision, and that is we're seeing through the eyes of God, and we'll see things perfectly. We have nothing to fear because ultimately God is sovereign in all things. So no matter how this election turns out, God's will will be done. So rest in that. Now, I want to talk this week, actually, <coughs> about authority. 
it's it's in the scriptures in all three of our scriptures today and so it's almost like i don't know where to start so i think i'm going to start with the old testament first because i think we can get to the gospel that way or maybe through the gospel to the epistle perhaps that's the route we're going to take today so anyway we're going to start with the old testament lesson and the old testament lesson is from the book of joshua it's Joshua 3, 7 to 17. It's the story of the people crossing the Jordan River and going into the Promised Land. Remember, they've had a river crossing, well, not a river crossing, they crossed the sea before, they crossed the Red Sea as they left Egypt. And remember, their enemies were behind them, chasing them, and the Red Sea was in front of them, and they had an immovable object that was preventing them from being able to get away and the people feared there at the Red Sea and they feared with good reason they had Pharaoh's army behind them and this most powerful army on earth and what we're told is the presence of God in the in the light moved around behind the people between the people and Pharaoh's army as sort of a as you get prayed for frequently a hedge of protection so that that light is between God's people and Pharaoh's people Pharaoh's army and so in that night, the wind blows, and Moses has his hand with the staff in it, the staff with which he's done signs and wonders in Egypt. He has that holding it out over the sea according to God's command. And as he does, the, the water piles up on each side, forms a wall for the people to go through, and they go through not on muddy ground, but on dry ground. And so they come through there, and then Pharaoh's army rushes in after them, and the sea comes upon them and kills them. And they're buried in the Red Sea just as they had thrown the Hebrew children into the Nile. So there's a symmetry in those two things that, that God drowns them in the same way that they had drowned the Hebrew children. And can you imagine the, the way you'd feel if your child had been thrown into the sea and now those who ordered that and carried that out are being covered up by the sea and drowned in the sea in the same way. And so that's when you get that first worship song that Moses sings and the women join in the dancing. <clears throat> so that, that has happened, but then they were afraid, remember, to go into the land. Moses sent spies into the land. They came back bearing produce from the land, which showed that it flowed with abundance. But at the same time, they said, but the people there are huge, and in their sight, we were like grasshoppers. Well, how did you know that? Did they tell you? But because of the fear of entering the land, they're doomed to 40 years in the wilderness until that generation died so that they can go into the land. And Moses was the last of that generation to die, as we saw last week in the lesson. And so now the, the leadership, the authority, has come to this man Joshua, the, one of the two of the spies who said, let's enter the land. God's the one who will make it happen. So Joshua, who had been aide-de-camp to Moses, now becomes the leader of the people. And in this passage, the Lord says to Joshua today, I'll begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that I, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. 
And Joshua said, here's how you'll know that the living God is among you and he'll be with you. He will without fail drive out from before you those who possess the land. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, and then the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. So when their feet come to rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water. And then we're reminded that the Jordan overflows its banks throughout the time of harvest. So we're, the, the Jordan's impassable at this point because it's from the spring rains, it's overflowing its banks. There'd be no way to cross this thing without God doing something. So as soon as their feet were dipped in the brink of the water, just barely in the water, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam. It's about 16 miles from there. <laughs> the city that's beside Zarathan and those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off and now the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Again, it's not just a miracle that God piles the waters up, but it's a miracle that after that riverbed is no longer flowing with water, it's dry ground. So there's two miracles there. So we've, we've got this symmetry again between what happens with Moses leading the people at the Red Sea and now Joshua leading the people across the Jordan River into the land. They're, remember before they had the enemy behind them and now they have the enemy before them. And they were afraid to do this before. And so the fear is still, I'm sure, there at some level. But they do this thing. But now there's two groups of leaders. It's not Moses acting alone here. Because now they have the covenant. They have the Ark of the Covenant. They have the tablets. They have the tabernacle. And so you've got the temporal leadership in Joshua and the uh, religious authority, their leadership in the priests that have gone into the Jordan River. But but Joshua is the one commanding them. So there's a, there's a, a clear... Uh, delineation of authority here. They do what Joshua tells them to do. However, they are the religious leaders. They're the ones who will interpret the law in a way that Moses did prior to the giving of the law. And so now you've got two forms of leadership in the land. You've got the secular, temporal authority of Joshua, and the but, but which is given by God. It's not a vote of the people. God designated him and here he confirmed him in the sight of all the people as a leader like Moses and the way you get somebody confirmed as a leader like Moses is to part the sea and so that's what, exactly what happens here and so but the priests have a role to play too now all of Israel is not standing back waiting for something to happen Joshua hears a word from the Lord tells the priests what to do and they take a leadership role as well by leading the people out of fear 
into the midst of the Jordan, which seems a ridiculous thing to do, except for, wait a minute, I've seen this movie before. We know what is going to happen here, but, but this time it's not the staff of Moses, it's the ark of God. It's the very presence of God that goes before the people into the water. And then God does this miraculous thing, and it's, they, they cross over onto dry ground. There are actually five times in Scripture where this same thing happens, where waters are parted and dry ground appears. And the first is in creation. Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. So God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called the seas. So then you've got that one. And then you've got after the flood when the dry land appears from the midst of this chaotic sea. And then you have the Red Sea. And then you have the Jordan River. But the Jordan River happens three times. This is one of those times, but there's two others, and they're back-to-back in the book of 2 Kings. Elijah, remember, is going to die. He's going to leave this earth, and Elisha knows it. Elijah keeps telling him to leave him alone, and he just won't. He keeps following him wherever he goes. And So in 2 Kings 2, Elijah says to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he, Elisha, said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I'll not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you've asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I'm being taken from you, it will be so for you. But if you don't see me, it won't be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. And then after, Elisha... <laughs> takes hold of his own clothes and tears them into two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and he struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. And now when the sons of the people who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. So because they saw what Elijah did, they see Elisha doing the same thing, and he's confirmed as the successor to Elijah as the prophet over Israel, which had a wicked king at that time. And so here it confirms Joshua as standing in the shoes of Moses because he did that which was like Moses. So what else happens at the Jordan River besides those two things? Well, for one, in this same place, the baptism of Jesus happens. Where the dove comes from heaven and rests upon him. And many people think that's the dove that, that Noah set loose to try and find out if the ground was dry. And so Jesus is baptized in the Jordan in this same place. And so there's a circle 
that's coming complete there as well. And that dove, remember, was the confirmation given to John that when a dove comes from heaven, the Holy Spirit comes in the form of a dove and rests upon the one you baptize. It could have been a counterfeit. It could have been one that came and just alighted and then left, but this one rests upon him. And that's the confirmation to John that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, who was promised to come and of whom John was anointed the harbinger. And so the, this crossing of the Jordan is the confirmation to the people that they can follow Allah, that they can follow Joshua. But it also confirms those two tiers of leadership, those two separate spheres of leadership, although God speaks through Joshua to the priests, as he does in other times through David and others, Samuel. So then we jump forward. Let's go forward to the gospel from here. And what we see at the gospel is this, it's Matthew 23, 1 to 12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. In other words, they, they, they occupy the place of leadership that Moses had among you as well. They have a different temporal authority over them at this point. They're under Rome. And so they have a, 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 a sort of a, a leadership over the people in the same way that Moses did when he sat on that judgment seat. Jesus is not even speaking of the priests here. He's pointing back to the guardians of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees, and saying they sit on Moses' seat. If you want to know what Moses' seat is, go back to um, Exodus 18, and you'll see him sitting in judgment on the people, and that's when his father-in-law, Jethro, comes and tells him, it's not good that you do this. It wears you out and the people. You need to, to divide this leadership up. So Jesus says the scribes and Pharisees sit on that seat. And he, and he affirms that they've been given that seat and that they're actually applying the law properly. Because listen to him. So do and observe whatever they tell you. Accept their leadership, in other words, but not the works they do. Hear that? <clears throat> For they pre preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, which would be a symbolic thing about prayer, actually, is most of what that is that, that they, they are making a big deal of their religious observance. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. And he speaks into that on multiple occasions. <clears throat> and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbis by others. An interesting kind of a thing here. This is something I noticed this week after, oh, 20 years of ministry, 23 actually. I noticed something because I'd been preoccupied with the unimportant part <laughs> in some ways, of what Jesus is saying here, because he's going to talk about titles. He's going to say, don't use these kinds of titles for yourself. And, and we had a guy at the church, because in Anglicanism, you can be, there are people who, who are known as father so-and-so. And so there was a guy who was serving under my leadership at the church, sort of, and he began to insist that people call him father. And I had one dear friend that I love so much call him brother. And he said, it's father. And she called him on it and 
refused ever to call him father, and rightfully so. But listen, and so it's easy to get caught up in what Jesus says about those titles, but here's the more important thing. Listen and see what you hear, and then I'll tell you what I want you to hear. <laughs> he said, you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers and sisters. So that's one thing. Don't be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. Call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. And here's the final one. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. So, did you hear it with me? It's the first time I'd ever heard it. It's the first time I'd ever noticed it. Don't be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. And that teacher's not named, is he? Who is that teacher? Don't call anybody father. You have a father. Don't be called instructor, because you have an instructor, and it's the Christ. So, the teacher is the Holy Spirit. There's the Trinity right there in the midst of that little passage. And I'd never noticed it because I was focused on the, those titles. Don't call people this. But Jesus wraps the Trinity in that. And so what he's saying is you have the Godhead available to you. Don't bow before other men. It's not that you can't learn from people who teach. I hope you can. I do. But ultimately... You're taught by God himself. You're taught by the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. And Jesus himself is the authority on earth. The Christ that he speaks of here is the authority on earth who has brought down the word of God to us and the interpretation thereof. And then the Father is already in heaven and always has been. And then he goes on to say, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. If there's ever a message that runs clear through all the Gospels. It's certainly that message. And so why do we choose a different path for ourselves? Why do we see other people exalted? Why do we exalt those people? Nope. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Under the tutelage of the Holy Spirit and the headship of God the Father, there's a clear delineation of persons and duties there. And now let's go to the pretty brief, actually, epistle, and that's First Thessalonians 2, 9 to 13. Paul says, you remember, brothers, hear that? Paul's not saying I'm greater than you. He's, saying, he's calling them brothers, just like Jesus told them to. He says, you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day, and he means that he worked at his work of tent making, that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God, your witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a matter worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Paul never forgot these were not his children. They were God's children. They were saved not by Paul and not by Paul's message, but by Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul was always clear about his role. He understood his authority in the churches. His authority was that of an apostle. And that word just means a real simple thing. It means sent one. It means somebody who is an ambassador with a message from a person greater than him. 
And so an apostle was given a message by an authority and told, go speak these words to the people to whom I send you. And so Paul always understood his role. He was a brother. He served one who was greater. He served the one who had died and been resurrected for sin and for life. And he served at the behest of the Father. Paul always kept the authoritative roles in proper order, never overstepped his bounds, never overclaimed for himself. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians, he speaks of, of these others in a mocking sort of way and, and says, these super apostles who came among you, and I don't know who these people are, but, but they, they have claimed greater control. And Paul says, no, wait, if anybody could, could claim you as their own, it's me. I'm the one who brought the gospel to you. These other people didn't add anything to it. But the, the Corinthian church had begun to look on them as these super apostles, and so they had, they had made too much of them. And whenever we make too much of someone else, we make too little of Christ. And Paul would never allow that to happen. He, the man humbled and abased himself all the time. He never made much of himself. Called himself the chief sinner. <clears throat> and that's the, the right way of leadership and exercising the authority given to leaders in the church is to always point to Jesus. Always be a brother to those you lead under the headship of Christ. And that's what Paul says. Look, we did, we did a couple of things. We proclaimed the gospel of God, and then like a father with his children, we exhorted you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And so again, Paul wraps all this in a Trinitarian formula. We preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're in the kingdom of God the Father. You received the word that we preached, not as some great eloquent speech from me, but as it is the word of God, which is at work through the power of the Holy Spirit in you believers. That's the flow of leadership and authority in the church. To the extent that I have any authority ever in a church, it's under the headship of the Father, under the the leadership of Jesus Christ who gave his life for the church and through the power of the Holy Spirit working in me and in the believers. And that's true in every single relationship, but we remain one thing. We remain brothers one to another. Doesn't mean we don't have roles. Doesn't mean there's no authority in the church. What it does mean is that all of that is submitted under the Trinitarian leadership of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then that flows out to the church and through the church into the world. We've got to get that right. We've got to get it right who we worship, who we celebrate, who we love, and who we exalt. We exalt the one who has been exalted to the right hand of the Father, the one who 
was exalted in Revelation 5. The lamb looking like it was slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who alone was worthy in all of creation to take those scrolls and to open them. That's leadership in the church. There's a place for leaders in the church. There's a place for leaders in the world. It's all submitted, whether you know it or not. It's all, all leadership, temporal, religious, whatever, is submitted under the headship of God who controls all things and who is sovereign over all things and in all things. Have a blessed week. Rest in that sovereignty. Recognize the truth that all authority flows from the one who parted the Red Sea, parted the Jordan River, and whose son walked on the water. He had the authority to do that himself. Remember those things and remember that he controls all things, that all things are according to his will, and rest in that sovereignty in peace. Thanks for listening today. Again, you're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. If you have anything you'd like to reach out through, go ahead and use that Facebook link just to the right here, and I'll be happy to get back with you uh, as quickly as possible. God bless.